Chapter 5. Guide My Will to Follow You Throughout these pages, God has been speaking to us, not suggesting, not requesting, but calling us. And not only does He speak to us, but God listens for our response. What will our response be? Will our response be assent? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are God. Yes, I believe that you died for me. Yes, I believe that you have a plan for my life. Ascent is good, but it costs us nothing. And God invites us to more than just mere ascent. He invites us on an adventure. And that adventure costs us everything. As Dr. Dan Keating, a noted scripture scholar, explains, to hear and believe the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is to be set out on a costly adventure of discipleship. Being a Christian or becoming a Christian involves much more than staking a claim to a religious identity. It means more than taking on a set of practices or attending services, though practices and services are essential. When Jesus says, come, follow me, he is inviting us to become his disciples. And when we respond to this call, we leave behind our own plans and enter into an adventure not of our own making. This adventure of discipleship is costly. It requires the cost of our lives. This is Alyssa, and as I write this, the situation in Afghanistan is unbelievable and tragic. With the return of the Taliban, Christians are being hunted and killed. An update I saw recently describes the desperate situation of whole families preparing to be martyred for their faith. It read, Most expect to meet Jesus face to face in the next two weeks. Lord, be near to these people. Then I read elsewhere that many of them are full of joy at the thought of meeting God face to face, which amazes me and moves me to pray, Lord, how much can I learn from them? I also recently read the inspiring autobiography of Maria Von Trapp. If you aren't familiar with this story made popular by the movie The Sound of Music, Maria grew up in the country of Austria during the rise of the Nazi party in neighboring Germany. Although certain elements of Maria's life were dramatized by Hollywood, she did marry a widowed baron and became a mother to his children, six in the movie, seven in real life, and they did escape from Hitler's oppressive Third Reich. What the movie misses, but her autobiography highlighted, was their primary reason for fleeing the Nazis, her family's devout Catholic faith. In the book, Maria recounted the pressure the Von Trapps were under to support the Nazi occupation. One day, her husband gathered the family and said, Now we have to find out what is the will of God. Do we want to keep our material goods, our house, our estate, our friends? Or do we want to keep our spiritual goods, our faith and honor? We cannot have both any longer. The decision was immediate. Maria wrote, There was no real question what God wanted. As a family, it was decided that we wanted to keep him. We understood that this meant we had to get out. They successfully escaped to Switzerland and were able to raise their children in the faith, serving God in freedom the rest of their lives. They lived in America, and 
later in life, Maria even experienced baptism in the Holy Spirit. What inspires me about both examples is the price they are willing to pay. There's a cost to following Christ, and it's not just for people like the Von Trapps or the Afghan Christians. Right now, God calls you and I to lay down our lives as faithful witnesses to the gospel. The call of costly discipleship isn't out there in some faraway land. It's right here in our daily lives. It may happen at home or at work or maybe in class. Emily Miller, an SPO missionary, describes an experience she had in college. Quote, I was in a philosophy course on death and dying. Since we discussed the ways various cultures and religions viewed death, Christianity and Catholicism came up pretty often. From the outset, my professor said things that presented the Catholic Church in a very negative light, so I spoke up. For every comment she made, I tried to politely offer a better perspective on what the church teaches and why I believe it as a faithful Catholic. It was quite tense. We had some heated debate, but I felt it was important to speak up so the class could see another side. One day after class, I spoke with the professor. I apologized if I was coming across as combative, but I also explained the way some of her comments about my faith made me feel. Definitely the right move. It led to a moment of reconciling and trust building. From that point on, we engaged in good, friendly conversation, and she was much more open to my perspective. Some weeks later, the sacrament of confession came up in class. My professor said something about only certain sins being forgivable, and I had to clarify. God's forgiveness is available for everyone, regardless of the sin, I said. And in a very Holy Spirit-inspired moment, I was able to give a short explanation of the kerygma, emphasizing God's mercy and the joy of heaven. For a moment, my professor was quiet. Then she asked me, is that really true? Yes, absolutely true, I replied. Her question wasn't academic. It felt like it came from somewhere deeper. Then one day, my professor didn't come to class. A substitute told us she was in the hospital. Unknown to us, she had been battling cancer that semester. Less than a month later, we learned our professor had passed away. I can't begin to imagine what my professor experienced in the last weeks of her life. I pray and hope, though, that in hearing about God's mercy, she was moved to consider Jesus, to think about heaven, and to turn to him before the end. I remember how scared I was the first time I felt moved to speak up in that class, but now I am so grateful. God's grace strengthened me, and I believe the Lord used it in some way to reach my professor. End quote. The call we're invited into, the call to discipleship, won't take form if our ascent doesn't lead to action, if our belief isn't backed up by our way of life. Emily could have sat quietly in class believing, but she didn't. She made the costly decision to speak up, to act in faith. This calls for something more than a conversion of the heart or even a renewal of the mind. It calls for a full commitment of the will. That's the focus for this, our final chapter. Discuss. Do you know of any similar testimonies of people who have made a risk to stand up for the gospel? Have any opportunities like Emily's occurred in your own life? 
A Commitment of the Will Sometimes I hear people in the formation community say that they wish the content included more catechesis around current issues or in-depth theology. It brings me back to my own early experiences with SPO, which gave me a somewhat different perspective. I came into formation as a first-year missionary, recently graduated from Franciscan University at Steubenville with degrees in theology and catechetics. Back then, if you asked me, I would have said my Catholic formation was very good. My years as an undergraduate had been so rich. Great professors, deep conversations, lasting friendships centered in Christ. When I started serving as an SPO missionary, though, I discovered that there was something missing. I had given God my heart and my mind, but I never fully committed my will. I started to realize this as I attended weekly formation and heard instruction on Christian life that honestly was pretty basic, but I was eating it up. Reconciling relationships, living in the light, embracing the gift of sisterhood and brotherhood in Christ, daily discipline, managing my media intake. These teachings were not necessarily groundbreaking, but I had not had the opportunity to consider before how the formation topics were related to Christian discipleship or how I could grow in these areas. Not only that, but now I was surrounded by people who were committed to living them out as well. I had head knowledge, but now I realized that I had to decide to engage my will in every single part of my life, to really and truly live the costly adventure as a disciple of Jesus Christ. To commit the will is not the same as willpower. It's not a white-knuckle approach to Christian living. Who wants that? Isn't it refreshing that when Jesus called his first disciples, he didn't say, try these five steps to success, or you can do anything you set your mind to. Jesus showed them a better way, himself. It's the same for us. When we step into the adventure of discipleship, we commit our wills not to something, but to someone. Jesus calls us to himself, to his person. It's an attractive call, not flashy, but attractive, because it's everything we were made for and deep down everything we really long for. The Decision to Follow I love meditating on those first disciples. What kind of men were they? Certainly not scholars or influential people. They were ordinary men leading ordinary lives. But when the Lord called, they dropped everything to follow. What could have inspired such a radical, all-in response like that? I'd offer that they saw something more in Jesus. He gave them vision and hope. Something about the way Jesus lived and spoke had the ability to lift their hearts and minds out of ordinary things and gave them a vision for something greater, a noble purpose. It wasn't just that he taught, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It was the way he lived this day in and day out. Nothing motivates us to give ourselves quite like seeing examples of love, sacrifice, and selflessness. And I believe that's what Jesus showed his first followers. He lived his life in such perfect love and generosity that the disciples couldn't help but want to be like him. It's the same for us. We're also called to love God with everything. We're also called to love our neighbors as ourselves. But it's one thing to hear it described, say in a homily or even discussed like a small group. 
It's another thing altogether when we see it demonstrated so it can be imitated. Even when it involves something very ordinary like developing good habits, then it's directed towards something very noble, the greater vision in Christ. That's what Jesus did with his disciples. That's what our way of life is also intended to do. Discuss. What did Jesus' initial call look like in your life? Did it happen when you were in a dark place? Did it come through a trusted brother or sister? Was it during a time of worship on a retreat? Was it a series of many calls over a period of time? Reflect on the call and share about it with your small group. The disciples saw something in Jesus because Jesus saw something first in them. It was not you who chose me, but I who chose you. John 15:14. In fact, we know from the gospels that Jesus took great care choosing those whom he wanted. Mark 3:13. He spent a whole night in prayer. We see in Luke 6:12 seeking the Father's mind before selecting those with whom he could share the Father's heart. Every single day. This call is for every single day. I think this point is so important. The disciples who answered the call didn't just make a one-time dramatic decision. No, they had to decide every day. They had to fully commit their wills to the Lord. Again and again, they made the costly choice to follow. At one point in our Lord's public ministry, we read about the fallout from his discourse on the bread of life. As a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer accompanied him. Jesus then said to the twelve, Do you also want to leave? Simon Peter answered him, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. From John six sixty six through 68 The Lord's response is telling, Did I not choose you twelve? Though he knew one would betray him, he also knew the quality of the other's commitment. We don't know why Jesus chose these particular men out of his many followers, but this story holds out an important clue. He wanted disciples who had staying power, those who were willing to wrestle with the hard teachings of the gospel even when others chose to walk away. During my years in SPO, I have seen that kind of daily faithfulness, especially among the men and women in formation. I have seen students and missionaries wrestle with the costly decision to follow Christ and demonstrate what that looks like. One example is the way I've seen people discern their approach to entertainment. What does it look like to glorify God in social media use? How can we discern what honors Jesus in music, movies, and shows? I believe this subject is especially important because media hugely shapes our worldviews, as Brother Sam described in the last chapter. How do we conform our wills to God's will when it comes to the use of entertainment technology? Does the Bible have anything to say about screen time? Not exactly, but one passage that has been impactful for me is when St. Paul writes to the Philippians and says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true... Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. From Philippians 4.8 I've taken this passage to prayer 
like a litmus test for the kinds of things I post, follow, and like. For example, some content on social media is helpful, creative, informative, and entertaining. It helps me connect with other people in some way. But in my experience, it doesn't take much time for my scrolling or my recommended feed to start straying into murky waters. Ideologies that contradict Christianity, inappropriate topics, languages, images. Not to mention the cascading consumerism messaging, the idolatry of celebrities, athletes, and influencers, you name it. Even things that aren't downright sinful are often unhelpful. Not true, not noble, not right, not pure, not lovely, not admirable, not praiseworthy. So why do I look at it so much? This is a battle I still fight, but that's my point. It's a constant struggle to make the costly decision to follow Christ. But the inspiration and support of other disciples, our brothers and sisters in Christ, keep our eyes fixed not only on the why, but on the who, the one for whom we are making these sacrifices. Discuss. How have you seen others live out media usage well? What practices do you try to have? What would you like to have in this area? You can see the appendix, My Media Intake, for some other helpful ideas. If this sounds too much like self-help, let's go back to the key point. It wasn't you who chose Jesus, it was Jesus who chose you. And every time Jesus called one of his disciples, he did so in a personal way. He knew them intimately, just as he knows us. He came to where the disciples were, under the fig tree, out fishing, collecting taxes. While we're busy with our lives, pursuing our own plans, making our own way, he comes to us. While we were still sinners, Romans 5.8 said, he came and found us. Let's be honest, without him, we're not very impressive. Like the disciples who toil all night to try to catch fish without success, our resolutions won't bear fruit unless Jesus comes to show us the way. We want to be great. We want our lives to have purpose. But without the call of Jesus, we won't even be able to cut back on our insatiable media habits. What is impossible for us, though, is possible with God. So Jesus says to the disciples fishing, I have a better way. Throw your nets over to the other side. And boom, a massive catch. This call to go all in then comes with a promise that makes it totally different from every other time you've tried to get your life in order. It comes with the Lord's assurance, Behold, I am with you always, from Matthew 28. And one of my favorite scriptures, If God is for us, who can be against us? From Romans 8.31 Trustworthy and Great Matters The rest of this chapter will continue with a closer look at the way we live out discipleship in our daily decisions. It is here that God speaks and we learn to respond consistently. This is the school of holiness, where we order our lives around a great and noble vision. We're going to look at priorities. We're going to commit to a weekly schedule. Does this seem anticlimactic? Counterintuitive to the idea that the Lord has called us on an adventure? Don't forget the Von Trapps or the Christian Afghans. Their faithfulness in big moments had to begin with faithfulness in little things. Jesus says the person who is trustworthy in very small matters is also trustworthy in great ones. From Luke 16.10 I love this quote 
from humorous P.G. O'Rourke. Everyone wants to save the world, but nobody wants to do the dishes. The point here is to consider the very practical things we do every day and invite the Lord into them. We ask his vision and inspiration so that like the disciples on the boat, we can focus our efforts where he tells us to, where we'll experience God's abundant provision. It begins when we put first things first. Glory to God in daily life. The day-to-day life of a disciple, no matter the age or state in life, is marked by a commitment to make Jesus our priority. As I consider any decision, I need to apply this standard, Jesus first. That means Jesus first when I dream of the future, Jesus first when I make commitments, Jesus first when I plan my schedule, Jesus first when I engage media, Jesus first when I spend money. I can say from personal experience that when our priorities are off, our relationship with God is going to be off too. We lose peace, joy, and focus. We make secondary things into primary things. We lose sight of what matters. On the other hand, the more we prioritize God, the more we will hear Him. And the more we hear God, the more we will prioritize Him. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be given you besides. From Matthew 5.33 It's easy to put off prioritizing. We don't know where to start, or we're no good at sticking with commitments. We've got too much distraction or too little motivation and so on. Our weakness is well known to us, but this isn't about our limits. It's about the power of Christ to restore our vision and strengthen our will. As the letter to the Hebrews says, at all times, all discipline seems a cause not for joy, but for pain. Yet later it brings the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. So strengthen your drooping hands and your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. From Hebrews 12, 11-13 Principles to Living a Prioritized Life Our lives are entrusted to us by God. Each moment is a gift. It's not a cliche. In the ordinary rhythms of morning, evening, and night, in the patterns of work and rest, in the cycles of seasons, He comes to us. Throughout each day, he is our constant companion, speaking, guiding, making himself known to us. And when our lives are overloud, overstimulated, and overbooked, we miss all of this. We have to be intentional about slowing down if we're going to listen for God. It takes a daily decision to make room for the things that help us grow in the most important of all relationships. That's why managing our time, being stewards of it, is so important. Discuss. When you consider your day-to-day life, is it clear that God is the priority? There are three fruits, among others, that we can foster as we commit to being intentional with our time. Faithfulness. People can rely on us and our word. Generosity. If we're good stewards of our time, we can be more generous with it. And peacefulness. While our lives don't have to be completely planned out all the time, having order frees us from unnecessary stress and brings us peace. What does this look like? If I'm new to a life of discipleship, it means inviting Jesus into each and every part of my day. I ask him what good things he wants to affirm, what weak things he wants to strengthen, what harmful things he wants to remove. 
There may be new habits he wants me to add, like regular prayer, reading scripture, going to the sacraments, small groups, fellowship with other Christians. All of this I do with him, not for him, as if he's standing somewhere to the side evaluating me. No, he's right here with me. That's the adventure. Suppose I've been living as a disciple for years. Maybe the Lord is inviting me to do a review, to examine those habits we've worked together to ingrain in my life. He may want to help me recognize areas I need to improve, time wasters that distract me without restoring me, and especially those that lead me into temptation and sin. It may be that I'm overcommitted doing good things, but I've lost sight of the main things. He's here with me to guide me in reordering my daily life. No matter if we've been following the Lord for one year or 30, there will always be a need to regularly identify our priorities and make sure our schedules and commitments reflect these. Some examples of how we can do this, recommitting to personal prayer time, recommitting to worship and restoration on the Sabbath, recommitting to speak in a way that articulates our hope and faith in God, just to name a few. Discuss. Does this section spark any ideas or convictions for how you'd like to use your time? Are there any things that could change that would help you listen to God better throughout the day? What's important versus what's a priority? Many things in our lives are important, but relatively few are priorities. We could fill page after page listing things that are important to us. Priorities, though, have this limiting factor. We have to set them in some kind of order, one above another. That requires decision, discipline, and God's grace. If we're serious about setting priorities, the ones that really matter should fit on a single piece of paper. At the end of this book, on page 83, is a personal priorities worksheet. I've found it to be incredibly helpful as I'm discerning what my priorities are in different seasons. You'll find an example worksheet and a blank one. First, start in prayer and invite the Lord to speak into these areas. Remember, he wants to speak to you and he wants to be a part of the decisions you make in your life. These questions can be a good launching point as you are using the worksheet. What am I currently committed to in each area? What commitments are the most important to me? Where is my heart invested the most? What percentage of my time do I spend on these commitments? Looking back in the last two weeks, what happened in those different areas? This is a way of figuring out before committing ourselves to doing something if we actually have the space and capacity to do it. And disclaimer, in case it isn't obvious, we can and should be saying no to things in our lives. We can't do everything, even if they are great things. When we discern well before we commit, we are able to more firmly let our yes mean yes and our no mean no. From Matthew 5, 37. This priority worksheet helps inform our day-to-day, week-to-week schedules. When we plan well, it can help us break bad habits and patterns, reduce frustration or confusion, help us to avoid distraction and bring peace into our lives. We cannot control all the circumstances in our lives or eliminate all distractions, But we can establish a framework that will allow us to fulfill our commitments to God and others and give him greater glory. Your small group leader will walk you through examples of how to use this tool and answer any questions you may have. Conclusion. Here I am, Lord. 
Like a stream is the king's heart in the hand of the Lord. Wherever it pleases him, he directs it. From Proverbs 21.1 In these pages, God has been speaking, guiding, inspiring, and instructing us to hear, not just generally, but also personally. He speaks to each of us in a particular way. From sudden, powerful words to subtle daily promptings, the Lord communicates himself to us. In this great dialogue, we are more than servants or subjects. I no longer call you slaves because a slave does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have told you everything I have heard from my father. From John fifteen fifteen. We are friends of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That means he shares with us his kingdom and invites us into his reign, even in the midst of our ordinary lives. It's easy to miss this when we pray that our Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The Father's will is to make us royal sons and daughters, kings and queens, under the one king, the Lord. And as with any adventure, it's costly, messy, and most of the time we're not sure how it's going to turn out. But we know we're not alone. If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. From 2 Timothy 2.12 Jesus, show us, each of us, the Father's heart, the Father's plan. We'd love to know it all at once, but we ask you to give us the patience and perseverance to receive it day by day and step by step. We want to hear you in our hearts. View the world with our minds as you do and commit our wills fully to be agents of your kingdom in this world. And when the time is right, when we are ready to take on a particular vision or mission you've custom made for us, let your call be clear and unmistakable. On that day, we want to answer the way your friends always do. Here I am, Lord. I come to do your will. Discussion questions. One, we touched on media usage and our schedules and priorities. What are other areas of life or decisions we make that the Lord calls Christians to be discerning about? What are my hopes, my doubts, and my fears as I consider inviting him into those areas? And number two, pray and ask the Lord, are there areas of my will that you are still calling me to surrender more to you? Share with your small group a way that they could support you in this.